Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today's episode is My Story, His Glory by Joel Hemphill. In this short but revealing testimony, famed Southern gospel singer Joel Hemphill tells his journey from oneness to one. Growing up in the Jesus-only movement, he preached and sung about Jesus as God until the Father began to show him the light. His transparent honesty comes through as he narrates how he courageously opened his mind to the possibility that maybe, just maybe, he had gotten the most important doctrine wrong for all of these years. He had misidentified God with his son and consequently robbed him of his glory. Now that Hempel has seen the light, he writes and travels, proclaiming the glory of God the Father with vigor and passion. I'll just kind of tell my story, if that's okay. Uh, my dad was an old-time uh, holiness preacher, started out what's called holiness Methodist and I'll call a few denominational names here, but it's not about denomination. It's about a relationship with the Lord. Amen. And sometimes our labels just divide. And I think we will see a day when labels mean less and less. And so, but anyway, my dad was a Methodist minister and then became part of the Pentecostal movement in the early 1900s and was in Hot Springs, Arkansas in 1914 when the Assemblies of God was formed. But he and some of the other brethren had already begun to see that the doctrine of the Trinity is not a biblical doctrine. So when the um, Assemblies of God was formed with the Trinity as one of its pillars, he and a few more of the ministers chose not to go in. And they were just a little bit in a, well, I guess, a, a wonderment at that point as to what they did believe about uh, God, what we call the Godhead. And in a year or two, they came up with an idea that if Jesus is not one of three persons of God, he must be the only person of God, God incarnate. And so they came up with the doctrine of the Jesus only. That's what they first labeled it, Jesus only. And then more or less in our day, oneness. I don't think even the oneness people hold on to the Jesus only label, but they did. They began to form uh, oneness organizations and named them Jesus only Church of God, Jesus only Pentecostal Church, Jesus only apostolic church and that was their that was their belief and my dad held on to that belief for uh, 68 years we um, we buried him in 1981 and he had two pins that he wore on his necktie and one of them and each one said Jesus only and he's buried with one and I have the other one in my office and I honor my dad I know that he was a man of God he walked with God he told me that angels came to him twice in his ministry with a message from God, and I believe that. And uh, he was a praying man. I'm his son, so I knew that he had calluses on both knees because three times a day he was out in the barn crying out to God, praying. 
and uh, he prayed every day for the peace of Jerusalem and all of scattered Israel. And he, you know, he prayed for his 14 children. I was very happy to be on his prayer list. I was kid number 10, had seven older sisters. That makes hand-me-down clothes real bad, I guess you know. <laughs> but anyway, we were uh, very poor, and he was a country preacher that walked with God. And so and in uh, 1957, I was just a 17-year-old guitar picker over in the church band. Here came the Happy Goodman family to preach a big tent revival. And Labriska and I began to date, and about six weeks later, she said yes. On the 28th of June, 1957, we were married. Hurricane Audrey blew the church, the tent down, tore up the organ, sound system, and all on Thursday. We got married on Friday. It's been a whirlwind ever since. <laughs> Should have known. But anyway, um, by 1959, I answered the call to the ministry. I was 19 years old. By the time we were uh, 21, I had Labriska and we had three children. We're pastoring a church. We pastored that church from 1971. By 1966, we became very dissatisfied with our outreach. Pastoring a church is a high calling. There may not be a higher calling than pastoring part of God's flock. But we began to fast and pray because I, every time I read the scripture that says the field is the world, that troubled my spirit. And I said, we're in a small paper mill town of 14,000 people, pastored about 150, had a radio program, and, and the field is the world. So we began to fast and pray and ask God for gifts. I found in the scripture that Paul said, desire the best gifts. I didn't know exactly what we were seeking, and I'm not saying in any way that we deserved it, but in 1966, God gave me the songwriting gift. I was uh, down at the church praying one day, and when I got up, uh, I went to the piano and began to play and began to write a song. Went home and sang it to Labriska, and she, was, she thought this was a distraction from what we were trying to do. She was not impressed at all. A few days later, I wrote another song and another one, and finally she got impressed and uh, <laughs> decided that, hey, this might be something that God was doing. I, had, I always honored songwriters. We always sang in our ministry, but I never thought about being a songwriter. That was the furthest thing from my mind. I was happy pastoring my church, but we did want signs, wonders, miracles, power, whatever the disciples had, that's what we wanted and felt like that in Scripture, Jesus said, you will do greater things than I do because I go to the Father. And so uh, we, we were seeking whatever God wanted to give, and he gave songwriting. So uh, the songs opened doors, and uh, we had a recording contract with Word Records out of, of uh, Waco, Texas, the largest gospel recording company in the world. And in 1971, we gave up our church and moved to Nashville to further our evangelistic ministry, our singing ministry. Basically went from the pulpit to the stage, and a lot of our friends didn't understand that. And I'm not saying I fully understood it, but we knew that we were following the Lord in this pathway. So uh, this went well. We had a lot of wonderful times, had some Dove Awards, and recorded 25 gospel albums, and uh, a lot of uh, 
songs, number one songs, Dove Awards and various things. Big day at the White House in 1978 with President Carter and his wife when they sat on a blanket down front and we had a thousand people on the South Lawn of the White House for a big, uh, big day and that was a wonderful day in our lives and got to minister in England and different places. But anyway, uh, in 1986, um, I had grown, I'll just say I'd grown cold spiritually. I was only praying at mealtime, and I say it's a good thing we ate often, <laughs> because I'm confessing, that's about the only time I prayed, and I ran aground, and uh, in, in the fall of 85, I just literally ran aground got into a situation that was destroying our home, it was destroying our ministry. Without being too transparent here, just let me say that, um, that I was in a situation that I could not get myself out of. And Labriska, when I let go, and we began to talk lawyers and divide the stuff, after 29 years of an almost perfect marriage, uh, she's had me fascinated ever since I've known her. She's the prettiest girl I ever saw. But for somehow, for in some way, I, uh, you know, I'm, I just uh, decided that I wasn't in love anymore with her, and so she didn't let go. She held on to me with one hand and God with the other. And she cried out, and there's power in crying out. And she she cried out to God, and so I didn't know if God would let me go or not. I, my soul was crying out to be rescued, but my mind was leading me in another direction. But God came on the scene in a very awesome way, a way that I did not know that he moved in 1986. But in the spring of 1986, God intervened, and I'll just tell it like it is. He intervened with visions. He intervened and spoke in an awesome, audible voice at one point. And, uh, you know, I don't mean to, to overstate it, but it was an awesome thing. God did what he had to do what he needed to do to rescue me from this situation. But when God spoke to me, he said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of your father and also your God. He said, Abraham rests in my bosom. Your father rests in my bosom. He spoke some awesome things to me. He made me some awesome promises. He told me to search the scripture because he was going to reveal himself to me in his word. He never said, I'm Jesus. He said, you call me Lord and I am he. You say to me, Jesus, and I hear thee. So I was calling God Jesus because Jesus to me was God the Father. It's hard to fathom that now, but anyway, we tried to, we made him a dual natured person, Christ. So anyway, God spoke to me and he told me that he was going to reveal himself to me in his word. He told me the day would come when I would write a book, our books, about his glory. He said I would be on talk shows talking about his glory. And so I began to search the scripture. I struggled with it for a while because I knew that there was something in scripture that I was not seeing. Been a person who loved the Bible all of my life. Been a minister of Jesus Christ since I was 19. Saved when I was 10. Water baptized in Jesus' name. When I was 10 years old, I loved the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a, I'm a Jesus man. Write songs about him, sing about him. Can tear up over him most any time because he rescued my soul on an old rugged cross from death and hell. 
But God said, I'm going to reveal myself to you in my word. So I began to look at the glory, everything in the Bible I could find about God's glory. I, I studied it. I studied the Shekinah glory, a Shekinah glory in the tabernacle or temple. That didn't seem to be what he was talking about. So I ceased to struggle with it and stayed open. In 1990, looking for my promises, along came cancer, complications, surgery, diapers, went down to skin and bone, panic, thought I'd blown my calling some way. The enemy said it's never going to happen, and, and I believed him. And so I went into depression, stayed in depression for two years, was under the care of some of the best psychiatrist uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. In that two-year period, they tried Xanax, Prozac, Lithium, Haloperidol, Halcyon, Senequan, Tofranil, Clonopin, Wellbutrin, Elevil, Tylenol. <laughs> None of it helped. Maybe it helped me sleep a little bit at night, but every day I stared at the wall, lay on the couch, stared at the ceiling. Labriska held on some more. Thank you, darling. She held on some more, took me to get my hair cut like a child for two years. I couldn't go by myself. Every day I was in fear, and I had received a call from a minister that I trusted long distance. He heard about my sleepless period, and he thought maybe I would go in a psychiatric hospital. And so he met well. I love him today as a friend. But he said, if you go into a psychiatric hospital, nobody will ever want to hear you again. Your usefulness to God will be gutted. It will be over your ministry. And I not only went into one, I went into two. So those words came back to haunt me for two years. And whenever, every morning when I woke up, I'm thinking, I don't understand. I don't understand. That's the number one thing I said for two years. I don't understand. But Sunday morning, November the 8th, 1992, in a service like this with sweet people like you, the Holy Spirit present as he is here today. My pastor got up. I was in the back, only went on Sunday morning, couldn't pay the light bill, couldn't go to the store by myself. But the pastor got up and said, Brother Hemp, he'll come up here. He said, God just spoke to me. He's going to heal you this morning. And I came forward with all my pain, with all my fear, with all my depression. And sweet people like you gathered around and laid hands on me and prayed for me. And somebody touched God. That's the last day of depression I have ever had. Amen. Praise God. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. And so somebody asked me the other night at Brother Farmer's Church, how you know you're okay now? I said, I have my doctor's certification, certified sane. I'm, I may be the only one here with that certification. I don't know. They say one out of every four people have serious mental problems. They say, check three of your friends, and if they seem okay, it might be you. Um, it was me for two years. It was me. But let me tell you with sound mind this morning that I know that I know who my God is. And, um, and the, one of the first things he let me know after he healed me was the deal is still on. So if you have some promises from God this morning, no matter what you've been through or what you've done, the deal is still on. God said, Moses, you've been on this desert 40 years, but the deal is still on. God said to Joseph, I gave you some promises when you were a boy, and you've been in all this stuff and in prison, but the deal is still on. 
So he let me know the deal is still on. Well, and so I'm still looking for my promises. Labrisca and I have ministered in many different countries after that and on a lot of Gaither videos. And so my testimony became that God delivered me from severe clinical depression and restored my mind and my emotions. And I'm not a fearful person. I'm an alligator hunter. That's what I do. I killed eight last September. And I'm just not a fearful person. God healed me, restored me. But anyway, I'm still looking for my promises. And, um, and I'm still wondering about the book. I told people through the years, one day I will write a book about God's glory. Didn't know what it was. About a year before the understanding came, God spoke to me in the night and said, you will be speaking things revolutionary. Well, I got up that morning, told Labriska, and we rejoiced. We didn't know it'd be Revolutionary War, and uh, but anyway, uh, we um, I got a hold of a book, and it was called The Doctrine of the Trinity: uh, Christianity's Self-Inflicted Wounds. I said, "Well, this is interesting. I've never believed in the Trinity. I was one this. Thirty-five years, I was out in." among Christian people of all denominations, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, uh, wherever God opened the door. In fact, three weeks ago, we had a four-day revival in Presbyterian Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're interdenominational, non-denominational. But anyway, that looked interesting, and I read it. And uh, it had to germinate, so I lay it aside for about a year, but you know, God has different ways of bringing us to proper understanding. We would minister in Israel. We ministered, sung for the army on the Golan Heights, sung in Jewish hospitals, and sung at the Hebrew University on Mount Scopus. We were over there sponsored by a very dear lady who came to this understanding 35 years ago. And she was a gospel music promoter of the Gaithers and uh, Sandy Patty and a lot of people and us. And so God opened her understanding. She tried to share it with a few people. They didn't understand it. So she just kind of had to keep it to, to herself. But we would be sitting on her uh, balcony drinking coffee, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, the most beautiful view I've ever seen. See the entire Sea of Galilee from her balcony. And she would say, Joel, why don't we let Jesus be who he said he is, the Son of God? And I said, wow. You know, that's right. So that began to soak in. And then some friends of ours wrote and recorded a song, God So Loved. And it's the God's viewpoint of Calvary. You see, Christianity has made Calvary a display of Jesus' love. And yes, Jesus went there in love. Paul said Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. But we've forgotten John 3.16, for God so loved. It's a display of God the Father's love. They wrote this song from that perspective, and I would put that CD in my player in my truck when I'd be out riding around and weep aloud over it. And I, I, I developed an empathy for God the Father, and I began to see God. And so in November of 2005, the scales began to fall from my eyes, and uh, I began to, I thought I was writing a gospel track. I do that sometime for our ministry. And so I just was going to write scriptures about God. And I went into Isaiah and found out 
God said, I created it all by myself. There was no God with me. I did it alone. And, uh, and I began to find other scriptures about one God in the Old and New Testaments and began to write those. And I was driven to write. And Labriska said, honey, this must be that book God talked to you about. And I said, no, I don't think so. I just think maybe it's a gospel tract. But it established a foundation in my mind of who God is, who the one most high God is. And he revealed himself to me in his word. I now see God the Father on every page. Yes, I see Jesus. Praise God. Give him a hand clap. Amen. Yes, I see Jesus. He's a supernaturally conceived, virgin born, sinless son of God. Our Savior, Redeemer, Messiah, soon coming King, but His Father is now my God. And Jesus is my Savior, my Messiah. I, my understanding was completed one day when I went through the book of Revelation and I highlighted every time it says God, Jesus, Lamb. God, Jesus, Lamb. It says God 99 times. It says Jesus 14 times. It says Lamb 29 times, and the focus of the book is clearly God the Father. I could not, I was looking for who is on that main throne, who is the king of the universe, because in my mind it was Jesus. And when I could not put Jesus on that main throne in heaven, I stood in our living room and literally wailed. And I had to change gods. That's the day I changed gods. Can I say that? Uh, you know, I, Jesus was my God. And I, it, was a, uh, it was an emotional adjustment. So I can have compassion on people who struggle with this. Because from the time God spoke to me about it until he revealed it to me was 19 years. And after I read Brother Anthony's book, like I say, I put that aside for a year until it germinated in my spirit. God used different things to reinforce it, but ultimately he revealed himself to me in his word. And so I've written this book called To God Be the Glory. I would wake up every morning, maybe five o'clock, get in my pajamas with a question in my mind, where is Jesus now? I had to answer that question for myself. He's at the right hand of the Father. What is he doing there? He's our intercessor. Hebrews said he's expecting. May I humbly say God the Father is not expecting anything. He just speaks and it's done. But Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father with a right to expect what God the Father promised him in Psalm 110.1, sit at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So I saw Jesus came at uh, Bethlehem, spoken before time, brought forth in time from the womb of a virgin, promised the throne of his father David. There's not a verse in the Bible that promises Jesus God's throne in heaven. Jesus said in Revelation 3.21, He that overcometh, I'll grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and have sat down with my father in his throne. God the Father is the king of the universe, amen? And his glory is the ultimate glory. And here's why my book's called To God Be the Glory. In Isaiah 42, the first seven verses are about the Messiah, an awesome promise about our Lord Jesus who was to come in Bethlehem 
some 740 years later. But God the Father says in verse 8, my glory I will not give to another. This was a real strong thing in my uh, opening my understanding. God says, my, my glory I will not give to another. And then in uh, 48.11, he says it again, my glory I will not give to another. So I began to see the distinction between God the Father's glory and Jesus' glory. God the Father's glory is innate. It is self-consistent. Jesus' glory is a given glory. There's absolutely no comparison between God the Father's glory and Jesus' glory. Jesus has awesome glory. He told his disciples, you'll see the Son of Man coming in great glory. Jesus' glory is so great that the brightness of his coming will destroy the Antichrist. But Jesus' glory is a given glory. He told his disciples, you'll see the Son of Man come in his own glory. He said, you'll see me sit in the throne of my glory. Luke said Jesus began to do miracles and manifest forth his glory. And Jesus said in the, uh, to the two disciples on the Emmaus road, should Christ not have suffered these things and enter into his glory? Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 19, Christ verily was foreordained, not preexistent. Christ verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world but manifest in these last times for you who through him do believe in God who raised him up from the dead and gave Christ glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Amen. So I realized that in my sincere desire to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, I gave him God the Father's glory. I repented of that and I no longer do that. Yes, glory, honor, and praise to our Lord Jesus Christ, but the ultimate glory goes to the Most High God, God the Father. Amen? Hallelujah. Amen. So, uh, and when we do that, we're obeying so many scriptures that say, give unto God the glory due unto his name. I never thought the day would come, Brother Buzzard, when we would have to defend God as the creator, right? Christianity has taken the creation and given it to Jesus. And as you know, Jesus' part in creation is redeeming creation. He redeemed it all. The first Adam lost it through sin. The last Adam bought it back at Calvary through his righteous blood. But we've taken God's throne and given it to Jesus. We've taken the creation and given it to Jesus. We've taken God's name and given it to Jesus. He told, he told Moses at the burning bush, my name forever, my eternal name is the Lord God. And he called himself the Lord God over 200 times in the book of Ezekiel. And then when that big angel showed up to talk to Mary, he said, the Lord God, who is that? That's God the Father. The Lord God shall give unto this child the throne of his father David. And he's called Lord God nine times in the book of Revelation. So I'm out now to give God the Father the glory due to his name. Let me just share one verse with you here in closing. And it's the 14th chapter of Revelation. I think it's verse 7. And there was a mighty angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel. Now, I know the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
But the end time message, when you declare this message, Brother Buzzard, I honor you so much. I owe you more than I could ever pay. Honored to meet this man. His scholarship is awesome to me. For me to get up and speak in front of this man is like being on a ball field batting in front of Mickey Mantle. I just really, uh, this, he, it's awesome, and I mean that. He's, uh, he, he deserves that honor. And I'm a, I'm a debtor to you and happy to meet you and thank you for this opportunity. But in the, the end time message, the end time message declared by a mighty angel flying in the midst of heaven was what? Fear God and give glory to him and worship him. Who is that? God the Father, the creator. Worship him who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and the fountains of waters. So when we give God the Father his glory, we're right on message and we're right on time. Amen? And God's doing some awesome things. Let me tell you this. God told me in 1986, I'm giving you a sword and not a dagger. A dagger is something you conceal, something you hide. And a sword is something you wear on your side in plain view that you take into battle with you, right? So if anybody asks you what I believe, you be quick to tell them. I'm not going to hide it. We're telling everybody that this is the message for today. I told my wife, Labriska, we have the truth and we're not going to act like we don't, right? We don't have to hide it. Uh, I sent this track called Can You Face Reality to 91, over 91,000 Christian ministers. Everybody has a mailbox. So I'd like to put one of these in every one of them. Not smart, not trying to be smart. I'm from Balcomville, Louisiana. That's three miles out past the paper mill. It used to flood all the time. Our house flooded, our church flooded. My brother-in-law said it's the only place he knows if your car is jacked up on blocks in your front yard, you can get yard of the month from the garden club. <laughs> the similarity between a hurricane and a tornado and a Balcomville divorce is somebody's fixing to lose a mobile home. <laughs> That's where I'm from. Graduated from Balcomville Elementary. Not, not trying to be anything but Joel. Just Joel. Just call me Joel. That's, that's all I am. But anyway, God has opened my understanding and he's honored me to be here with you today. To God be the, uh, can you face realities going out to 91,000 ministers? We have plenty. If you want some of these, take them. If you want to copy them or we'll send you more. The shocking admissions gone out to over 43,000 Christian ministers getting ready to send out more, giving away hundreds of books. It's to God be the glory. Amen. And thank, thank God for Jesus. Uh, that prayer, this opening prayer, Brother Buzzard. Uh, yes, thank God for Jesus and our God. Now I pray like God spoke to me the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of my Lord Jesus Christ, yes, the God of my Father and my God. And I have just absolutely fallen in love with God the Father. And Jesus said in Mark 12, 29, that's the greatest commandment. Thou shalt. How are how's people going to love God the Father if they don't know who he is? Right? So thou shalt love the Lord thy 
God, with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their strength. And I'm preaching to the choir here this morning. We love you all. Thank you again for praying for us, holding on to this truth. Thank you, Brother Bo. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.